to see you, uh, and we are ready, believe it or not, <laughs> for Tuesday night. Now we have just a couple more weeks after tonight, so we need to uh, cover this well. Well, we, uh, we have come in our study of the Passion Week of Jesus to Tuesday evening. That's where we're going to pick it up. Now let me just do a little bit of uh, review real, real quickly. We have said that uh, Jesus, uh, several weeks before the Passover season at which he would die was in Perea. And while there, some Pharisees came and tried to lure him back. Remember that, Luke 13? And he said, you're not going to see me until the city welcomes me as Messiah. Citing Psalm 118. And then Jesus, some weeks later, was notified that his friend Lazarus was sick. And so he took the 12 disciples, Jesus did, went over to Bethany. They were convinced that it was probably a death march, to be honest with you. And uh, they, 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 but they did, and Jesus did, in fact, raise Lazarus from the dead in this miracle that was so deliberately spectacular. And as a result of that, number one, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees especially were intent on killing him. Remember we said that after the raising of Lazarus, Jesus is a wanted man. He's a fugitive. But he makes his way to a little village called Ephraim, and he tarries there. Meanwhile, the whole city of Jerusalem is a Twitter with the question, will this Nazarene even have the nerve to come up this year to Passover? And... Uh, Jesus waits until uh, it's time to set out, and then you have that rather cryptic or enigmatic phrase in uh, Luke 17 where it says that he uh, passed through Samaria and Galilee, passed through the heart of, but it's because of his craftiness, because he was in fact wise as a serpent, and so Jesus makes his way up north, falls in with some of those Passover pilgrims, makes the trip down the ridge, the rift route, down the Jordan Rift route, and uh, contrives to arrive on Friday afternoon just outside of Jerusalem and Bethany. Remember all that? And now the crowds go in. They alert the city to his coming, John 12, verse 11. And so on Sunday morning, Jesus rides into the city in fulfillment of at least three lines of Old Testament prophetic truth, deliberate Old Testament prophetic truth, and uh, is welcomed as king in what we are calling the day of messianic presentation in the sense that it was on that day that Jesus most dramatically uh, presented himself to Israel as her Messiah. It was the fulfillment of that prophecy in Daniel 9 that talks about from, from the going forth of commandment on to Messiah the Prince would be 483 years. Well, that was Sunday, and we asked the question a couple of weeks ago, given Sunday why, Fri uh, why Friday, and I tried to answer it by going to Monday and Tuesday. And we did talk about Monday and Tuesday last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. But remember that, here's my point, and I'm calling it a day of messianic uh, proclamation. First of all, because I was committed to peas. But beyond that, uh, because I'm convinced that it's on this day that Jesus so dramatically and deliberately and forcefully drives Israel to a decision concerning himself. And that decision has to do with whether or not they will accept him, as it were, on his terms, as the Messiah of the Old Testament, which is most seminally and fundamentally and definitionally a deliverer from sin, from the curse of sin, and only he can be that. And uh, were they willing to accept him? On Sunday, they made a great show of willingness to accept him. Those were the leaves, if you don't mind. But now he drives them to a decision, will you take me on my terms? And uh, by Friday, we're going to have that verdict, the, the, the absence of fruit, if you don't mind. The fruit of repentance. That's exactly what uh, the Messiah demanded of this generation, of every generation. Well, that's Monday. 
And uh, I want to pick it up. That's Monday and Tuesday, actually. Monday and Tuesday. Remember, Monday he comes in, a fig tree thing, and then cleanses the temple. And then Tuesday he comes back, and all of his enemies try and catch him in his words and so on. And he puts them all to silence. And then he stands there and pronounces those awful woes upon the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And I said last week that that's significant because the Pharisees are, are so, so revered by the common man. And because they are powerful. And Jesus is saying, you reject that doctrine, that gospel of law-keeping self-righteousness in order to submit to me, or, 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 or you're lost. And, and he makes them choose between him and the Pharisees, a favorite tactic he is throughout his ministry. On Tuesday night, remember I told you that one of the ways in which Jesus demonstrates his cleverness is that he stays this entire week in Bethany, where he is remarkably safe, given the fact that uh, the most powerful men in all the land are anxious to put him to death. But at any rate, on Tuesday night, Jesus returns to Bethany. Now, I want you to go to Matthew 26. No, yeah, let's go to Matthew 26 first. Something happens on Tuesday evening. I sort of referenced it just in passing a couple, I think last week, when I talked a little bit about the, uh, the feast at which Mary anointed Jesus. Remember that? And on what night did that happen? Do you recall? That feast happened on Saturday night. It's recorded there in the book of John. The curious thing, and I don't want to get into this. I can't. I mean, I want to desperately. It's fa- I think it's fascinating. It's a very, very interesting exercise in synoptic comparison and so on, or gospel harmonizing. But In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, we'll just look at Matthew 26, the story of the feast is insinuated into the middle of Matthew's Tuesday narrative. In other words, we know that it happened on Saturday. But both Matthew and Mark tell it in the middle of their Tuesday narrative. And you'll see it in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 3, is it not? Where uh, I don't want to read it right now. We're not going to spend any time with it. We already did. But uh, no, verse 6, I'm sorry. But in point of fact, look at Matthew 26 and verse 1. All right, now let me remind you of something else. On the way out of Jerusalem on Tuesday afternoon, (laughs) go back to Matthew uh, 23. Let me do this real quickly. This This is so important, and I didn't mention it before. But do you remember, honest to goodness, a lot of weeks ago, class, Do you remember what Jesus said to those Pharisees over there in Perea when he wept over Jerusalem? Remember what he said? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you unto myself as a hen does her chicks, but you would not, and therefore what? Your house is left to you desolate, and you'll not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in. Remember that? Now, that promise, that remarkable prophecy, was spoken by Jesus in Perea, several weeks before the Passover. We traced how it was that Jesus brought that to pass. Remember that? I said to you that if you'd have been in the crowd and you'd have heard that, you'd have said it's not going to happen. It did happen because Jesus was so careful to make it come to pass. Now it's Tuesday afternoon. On Sunday, he rode into the town, and the whole city welcomed him as king. On Monday and Tuesday, he cleansed and possessed the temple and behaved more messianically, I like to say, than any other time in his ministry. What do you think is going on in the hearts of his disciples? Think they're pretty encouraged? (whistles) 
wow, the whole city welcomes him as king. We're on a roll here. Okay, he's been talking about dying. I don't know. Who knows? He's under some pressure. I don't know. what, But we are on a roll here. You've got to understand that. But on the other hand, what do you think is going on in the hearts of his enemies? And remember I said that he had kind of avoided Sadducean turf until yesterday morning. And when he cleansed that temple for the second time, those all-powerful Sadducees were mad beyond words. So now Jesus leaves the city. He leaves the city on Tuesday afternoon for the last time under his own power, as it were. That's not quite true. He's going, well, it is true. It really is true. But, I mean, there are some geographical niceties. As he does, he stops on the Mount of Olives, and he looks back on the city, and he weeps over it. And look what he says. It's in Matthew 23, verse 34. I'm sorry, verse 37. Now, folks, are you with me? This is Tuesday afternoon. This is important. And this is what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you'll see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Word for word. It's the same thing. These are not parallel. They can't possibly be parallel. That earlier that we found in Luke 13 was spoken by Jesus in Perea weeks earlier. This is Tuesday afternoon, and he says the same thing. And it's the last time he leaves the city. The fact of the matter is, the grand difference between what Jesus said in Luke 13 and what he says here in Matthew 23 is simply this. Luke 13 has already been fulfilled. Matthew 23 awaits fulfillment. Folks, there is coming a day, and I may lose it here because I just cherish this, this thought. There is coming a day when that nation which has proved itself so hard is going to bow the knee and they're going to look upon the one whom once they pierced and God's name is going to be gloried throughout all eternity for the fact that he can bring that people to himself. And if you'd have been in that crowd there in Luke 13 and heard Jesus speak those words, you'd have thought, that's probably not going to happen. It happened. And if you know anything about the Jewish people today, Lord bless them. There is a blindness. There is a hardness. They have set themselves in stone. But I take Luke 13 as an Ebenezer. God brought us this far. He can take us the rest of the way. And there is, honest to goodness, there is coming a day when God is going to bring Israel to himself, to his own glory. Some people are convinced that because Israel has been so stubborn and so recalcitrant, that God has permanently set her aside and set his love rather upon a people who are more deserving of it. Let me just tell you something. God is not looking for people who deserve his love. He is going to show his love to people who high-handedly reject it, and therefore the glory of his patience and his love and his mercy and his covenant faithfulness is going to reverberate throughout all eternity. I can't imagine anything more distressing than the notion that God has rejected his covenant relationship with Israel doesn't reflect on Israel, it reflects on God. Now, see, I got lost. But the point is, that's on Tuesday afternoon when Jesus, for a second, very telling time, weeps over Jerusalem. Now he goes back to the city of Beth- uh, On the way, by the way, he stops and preaches what we remember is the Olivet Discourse. No time for that. But now he goes to Bethany. I'm finally back to Matthew 26, and I told myself, oh, we've got to keep going. Matthew 26, 
It says, uh, and, and, and it says, now it came to pass when Jesus finished all these things. That's the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, spoken at the top of Mount of Olives. By the way, one other thing. <laughs> that mount is important. That mount is so important. I mean, just in the history of things. It's called several times, twice in Scripture, it's called the Mount, which is on the east of the city. In the Old Testament, God ruled in Israel in the person of the glory cloud from 1446 to 592 B.C. In 592, by reason of Israel's hardness, that glory cloud departed. Are you familiar with this? It's recorded in Ezekiel 8, 10, 11. And as the glory cloud departs, it goes up, he goes up. It's really a person. And that glory cloud hovers for a time over the temple and then the outer gate of the temple. And then Ezekiel 11 That glory cloud, King Yahweh, having been rejected by his people, hovers for a time, the Bible says in Ezekiel 11, verse 25, over the mount which is on the east of the city. And you have that picture of King Yahweh, heartbroken, having been rejected by his people. He's not abandoning his covenant relationship, but he's abandoning the theocratic relationship. He's departing as king. Now another time, King Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, and he weeps over the city. Do you catch the parallel? It's exactly the same thing. Israel has rejected her king once again, and Jesus weeps over the city once again. Now, praise God, it's not the last time his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. Amen and amen? He's coming back to that same place in Zechariah 14. But he goes down on the Mount of Olives to the city of Bethany, and now finally to my point. Verse 1 Uh, Verse 2, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, you know that after two days of the Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now that means it's Tuesday night. And then I want you to catch this. Verse 3, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. A lot of history here. Let me just say this, that this Caiaphas, I think, is the true villain in the whole passion narrative. I think Jesus establishes that in John 19. But this Caiaphas is the high priest. He has purchased the office. He's a man of uh, uh, bottomless uh, corruption. And, uh, uh, but he has a very spacious villa down to the south of the city, his personal home. And uh, that's where Judas goes uh, on Tuesday night. Do you have that? He goes down to the house of Caiaphas. We always, we, we always taught that that was the place, and where tradition had it, but interestingly enough, about 20 years ago now, they were doing some work there in a park called Haas Promenade, and uh, just a bulldozer fell into a cave that they didn't know was there. Broke into a cave, just fell into a cave. And when they started to look around, it was a burial cave, and it was the cave of the house of Caiaphas. And this man's bone box was found, scribbled on the outside, Joseph ben Caiaphas. So we know that, uh, for what it's worth, the tradition is good. It's not all that important. Of course, and to this day, that hill where that's, that house sat, and it has been for as long as anybody can remember, it's called the Hill of Evil Council. And it's called that because that's where Judas went to make this bargain. Now, we always have great fun with that because today that's where the UN is and that big flag there, and so we can say that's the Hill of Evil Council and it works for us on a couple of levels. But, uh, but uh, leave that aside. The point is that Judas makes his way down there. But I want you to see, verse 3 again, they assembled at the house of Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But watch this. Not during the feast, they said, lest there be an uproar among the people. Remember, we talked about this dynamic before, that Jesus was so wildly popular, and the fact that he cleansed the temple day before, just yesterday, this is Tuesday night, 
means he's all the more wildly popular. And the city is swollen with Jews from all over the world for Passover. And so they know that if they try and just grab him and surreptitiously or something like that, there will be a riot. And so they say not until after the feast. Now here's the interesting thing. On Tuesday night, the, those who are going to perpetrate the death of Jesus throw their hands in the air and say, we can't get it done during the feast day. Now what it says? Not till after the feast. He's going to die on the high feast day. How does that happen? The answer in one word is Judas. Now, at this point, and I'm not going to go to Mark, but look at it. I, I mentioned this before in verse 6. Notice that, that at this point, we have the story of the anointing. But it's told as a flashback when Jesus was in Bethany. And just as importantly, now watch this, eyeball this. I won't read it, but in verses 6 to 13, you have the story of the, un, the feast and the anointing and the rebuke and so on. But then in verse 14, we return to the house of Caiaphas. In other words, clearly verses 6 to 13 is a parenthesis because the story which is suspended in verse 5, all the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, well, we can't do it during the feast day, is picked up exactly there in verse 14. That makes sense to you? So in verse 14 it says, Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. Now remember, this is picking up that story which is just said that they were, that his enemies were anxious to kill him, but they couldn't during the feast day. Now Judas comes and, and says, What do you want him to give me? And, and they count out 30 pieces of silver, and he sought opportunity to betray him. Now go over to Luke 22, because I want you there anyway. Luke 22, again, remember you got these three Gospels which are synoptic. They tend to see the same thing, synoptic, and soon optic. And uh, Mark is, is immediately parallel to Matthew. I won't take you there, Mark 14. Luke is parallel, very, very closely parallel, but he doesn't include the story of the anointing. But look at it in Luke 22. He says, The feast of unleavened bread, I'm in verse 1, drew near. Now Jesus has said it was two days away. We're not told... And then it says, the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, we're not told they were at the house of Caiaphas, but this is exactly the same meeting, right? But look at verse 3. Now, by the way, by the way, it's at this point that in both Matthew and Mark, you have the story of the feast, the anointing, and the rebuke. Luke doesn't tell us that, but look what you do have in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas. So the point is, and I don't want to get lost in this at all, but... But the point is, uh, why do Matthew and Mark tell us the story there? I think Luke tells us quite plainly, because it was that rebuke administered on Saturday night that so angered and stung the unrepentant, unregenerate heart of Judas. He was long since angry with Jesus, and now, and this is exactly what sin does, it corrupts and, and, and just just... And his, his spirit was so rotten with anger against this one whom he had ostensibly followed and so on. That when, and it's interesting, you go to the Gospels and you discover that it wasn't specifically to Judas that the rebuke was administered. But I think Judas was probably leading in it and he's the one who had the suggestion about giving to the poor and so on. And so this rebuke just so, I think, lodged in Judas's unrepentant heart. He determined to do something about it and he has opportunity on Tuesday night. Does that make sense to you? Now, let me say in that regard, well, first of all, I, I said last week, so I don't spend any time with it, that, that I don't think we have to come up with any, any convoluted explanation as to why Judas remained an unbeliever. He just loved his sin more than he loved what he clearly knew to be the truth and so on. But 
I'm convinced that, oh, I know I was going to say, Paul says in Ephesians 4, let not your, the, the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. I think very possibly, I'll check with him when I get there, but I think very possibly Paul has this in mind. Because Judas had, had let this root of bitterness take, you know, grip his heart for so long that when he got the opportunity... It's interesting, by the way, that all the 11 other apostles were all Galileans. Judas is the only Judean. So he, he lives close by. He lives in Cariote, which is close by here. And, uh, and so he easily could have made excuses with their staying in their area, Jerusalem and Bethany, well, I'm going to go stay with the family tonight or whatever. So it was easy for him to do this. Now, here's the question, and then I'm going to get on with it. Now, I want you to, I want you to, pay, I want you to think about this. On Tuesday night, remember this, before Judas showed up, the Sanhedrinists, the Pharisees and Sadducees had already confessed, we can't get it done. Judas shows up and enables them to get it done. Why is it so important for them to get it done as soon as possible? Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. They are beside themselves with anger. Remember, after the raising of Lazarus, they had announced to the whole country, this man is to be arrested. Rather than that, when he rides into town, they fall down and worship him. The city does. And now he possesses the temple. But what was it that Judas was hired to do? You know what? There is almost, I, I, I don't know, I, I run into all the time this notion that Judas was hired to identify Jesus. Like they wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Well, let's think about that for a minute. Uh, uh, Jesus rode into the city and the whole city welcomed him. Jesus possessed... I don't imagine there's a set of human features that is more universally recognizable than that of the Nazarene. But I'll tell you where that notion comes from. And it shows up in every passion play I've ever seen, including the big one. Uh, but uh, the reason for that is the kiss. See, when Judas, when, when Judas went with the soldiers to arrest Jesus, he said, the one whom I kiss. But you have to understand that the Sanhedrinists were not allowed any sort of arms of their own. So if they wanted to have some sort of a police action like arresting this man, they had to borrow Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers lived in the, in the Antonia, and they wanted nothing to do with the Jews. So the kiss was for the Roman soldiers. Does that make sense to you? Judas was not hot. We're, it's explicit. It doesn't make any sense to suggest that he was hired to identify him. And furthermore, we're told exactly what he is hired to do. And I want you to see it in verse 6, because they give him money, and I want you to catch this. Verse 6, he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. That was the issue. They longed to arrest him. They figured if they arrested him without a riot, they could contrive to get him before a Roman tribunal, and the Roman tribunal they could convince to to crucify him. But their problem was that they couldn't lay hands on him because the people were so fascinated with him. Does that make sense to you? So Judas's job was to... What he was paid to do was to arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. Now, watch this. It's Tuesday night, a Passover week. When's the next time Jesus is going to be in the absence of the multitude? See, it's at the Passover feast. Passover feast has to be taken indoors. It has to be, so you're not going to have the huge crowds and so on. And so what happens here is on Tuesday night, a huge plot begins to be laid to arrest Jesus, indict him, turn him over to the Romans to be uh, tried, 
and have him on the way to the cross before the city wakes up. You got that? You got to understand that. This whole thing is about getting Jesus on the cross before the city wakes up because Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, everybody in the city, save Jesus and maybe Mary, is convinced that if the city has something to say about it, they're going to rescue Jesus. That makes sense to you? Now, there is, after these, well, I have on the chart here, Silent Wednesday. I'm going to talk about this in two minutes. Hold on to your hat. A lot of people are off-put by this. And they, they think, well, it seems strange that the record jumps from t- late Tuesday night to Thursday afternoon. And so they'll fuss with the, uh, with the chronology to somehow close the gap. Well, maybe on the face of it, it seems a little bit strange. I don't think it is. The Bible often does this. I think it was probably a relatively quiet day because Jesus has, in fact, brought the city to a point of decision. And now he just tarries, I think, there in Bethany, without a doubt, waiting for the time when it was for the Passover meal. Does that make sense to you? But here's the other side of it. And maybe I'm the only guy in the world that's interested in this. But think about it. What's going to happen on Friday, Thursday night and Friday morning? It's huge. Jesus, after he emerges, we're going to come to this in just a few moments, after he emerges in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm getting ahead of myself, But late Thursday night, early Friday morning, somewhere around midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning on Thursday night, Friday morning, as Jesus emerges from the Garden of Gethsemane, 600 Roman soldiers are going to show up to arrest him. John 18, with armors, lanterns, and weapons. This is a fully panoplied cohort of Roman soldiers. And by the way, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why bring all those soldiers? Jesus is not a threat. No, Jesus is not a threat. The crowds. That's what the text keeps saying. They're afraid of a riot. So 600 soldiers are going to show up to arrest him in the middle of the night. Now, my point is, you don't just go ring the doorbell of the Fortress Antonia and say, hey, quick, can I have 600 soldiers? See, that's going to take a little time. You're going to have to go and make a rain. But it gets bigger than that. When Jesus is arrested late on Thursday night, he is going to be immediately taken to the home of Caiaphas. Now, this is a different home. This is his high priestly villa on the western hill. I'll talk about it in just a moment. But he's going to be taken to that place where the Sanhedrin, probably most of 70 men, are going to convene in the middle of the night to try him. Now, this is a culture where when the sun goes down, you go down. You don't do things in the middle of the night. And there's no email. There are no telephones. You see what I'm saying? You're going to have to notify 70 guys who live all around this place. You're going to have to send runners. We think we got them. Be ready. And so there's a lot of... It's going to take time to get all this in place, but that's not even the biggest part of it. After that nocturnal trial or that indictment where they meet uh, with with the Jewish Sanhedrin to come up with something with which to charge Jesus, once they finally have that charge, now they're going to take him to Pilate. And Pilate, that trial before Pilate, remember in John 18, that because it's Passover season, the Jews don't want to defile themselves by going into a house, and so they asked Pilate to come out and, and, and have the trial on the pavement. Remember that, on the patio, on the Gabbatha? Well, I always say, I'm thinking that uh, Pilate probably didn't shuffle out there in his, in his bathrobe and, and bunny slippers, you know what I'm saying? I think, without a doubt, he had to have the whole apparatus, you have to have the tribunals, you have to have the day, so you have to have to set this whole tribunal to, to try. This takes a lot, and it's going to start about 4.30 in the morning going to be over by six o'clock so you can bet they were paying Pilate off big time just to get him to consent to convene this trial at 4 30 in the morning now my point is 
that whole plot, which is going to eventuate in the arrest and Jewish trial and Roman trial of Jesus, and it's going to be over by 6 o'clock in the morning. The city is just beginning to wake up as that hits, it reaches its culmination, and, and Jesus is hauled off to a cross. It was a very carefully engineered plot. It wasn't even late until Tuesday night. See the point? I think you're hugely advanced. This Wednesday was, was very important for all that had to take place so that that plot could unfold on Thursday night. And it was always planned for Thursday night because that's when he was going to gather with his disciples for the Passover. Does that make sense to you? All right, let me pick it up then. Because, and I, and I say, as a matter of fact, on, on here, you don't have to worry about it. I think it's essential. I think it's important that during this Wednesday, if you don't mind, during that time, the city has time to contemplate the decision that Jesus drove them to on Tuesday afternoon. I think that's very important. But uh, furthermore, uh, you have to have all the preparation and so on. And I think he probably used the time to prepare the upper room. So I want to pick up on that. Thursday, all right, are you with me? Monday and Tuesday, days of proclamation. Jesus drives the city to a decision. Now he returns. On the way out, he weeps over the city. He goes to Bethany. He's going to tarry there, evidently, uh, for all we can tell, quietly there in Bethany, but on Thursday, and and of course on Tuesday night, Judas is going to go and make that deal, Tuesday night, two days before the Passover, uh, with with the Sanhedrinists, and he's hired specifically to help them arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. The plot is to do that at the Passover supper, and so here's what happens. Thursday we're going to refer to as a time of messianic preparation, and it is clearly that. It's twofold. Basically, Thursday is the upper room and Gethsemane. And in the upper room, Jesus is clearly preparing his disciples for what's going to happen in the morning. And then in the garden, he is preparing his own soul spirit for what's going to happen the next morning, right? So you have these two grand moments of preparation, and we're going to go through them all together too quickly. But first of all, let me take you to to Thursday. Oh, you know what? I'm glad that reminded me. Let me tell you this story very quickly. Go to John chapter 12. Now, this is something that came up the other day. I, I, somebody asked me about it, and I promised I would deal with it. It's, it's a really, really poignant element of the story. Listen, before we're done tonight, and I haven't left myself much time, I'm going to hurry, but I wanted to get us to Gethsemane. And I'm convinced that you really can't come to grips with Golgotha unless you start with Gethsemane. I think it's very, very deliberate, the scene God gives us in Gethsemane. But one of the things, and I'm going to try and impress this upon you, and we have, I have insisted all the time we've been together how important it is to take Jesus' humanity very seriously. The Bible could not be more explicit about it. And uh, let me just say, as baldly as I know how, that as the cross drew near, it filled Jesus with terror. He was horrified by the prospect of the cross. You can't overstate it. The terror of the cross. Now, we're going to talk next week about the cross, and we're going to talk a little bit about crucifixion, the physical act of crucifixion. There has never been a more gruesome, deliberately cruel means of execution ever devised. We'll talk about it. But I only say that to make this point. It was not the physical suffering that terrified Jesus. Jesus knew that when he went to the cross, he would become your sin sacrifice and mine, and in some ultimately inscrutable but unspeakably horrible sense, he would be forsaken by the Father. 
That's what filled his heart with terror. And I'll go another step. As Jesus faced, the, the single strongest temptation that Jesus ever faced was to turn back from the cross. Satan used it. He heard it in Peter's words. And you encounter that terror in John chapter 12. Now, now I, it's hard to say exactly when John chapter 12 occurred. I've got to be so quick here. Hurry, Bookman. But the, it's probably on Tuesday of the Passion Week. So sometime while Jesus is teaching, and only John, as this is one, tells us this story, sometimes some, some men come and they say, we want to see Jesus, and they're brought to Jesus, and Jesus begins to talk with them about his death. And uh, you'll see it in verse 23, where Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he, and he, he understands this glorification can only happen through his death. And he says, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground... And dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it produces much grain. Now, I know we read this and we think that Jesus is talking, encouraging us about a willingness to, to die on his behalf and so on. But I think he's talking primarily, he's contemplating his own death. And he's reminding himself that there can't be the fruit that he has come to win unless he dies. And he goes on to say in verse 26, of course, if anyone follows me, he too. But he who loves his life will lose it and so on. But what I want you to see is verse 27. And this is really a strange, not strange, but it's a moving and compelling verse. Because in, in the middle, and, and I conceive of it, here you are in the Temple Mount, tens of thousands of people hanging on every word. He's answered a question. And now as he contemplates very deliberately the death which he is going to die in several days, this is Tuesday. His soul is just overwhelmed. And he sort of breaks free of the crowd, and he says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. The contemplation of the cross so troubled his soul. I, I picture it almost like a Shakespearean actor that steps to the front of the stage, you know, in the soliloquy and begins to kind of breaks free of what's around and begins to address the heavens. That seems to be what's going on. But notice what he says. As he contemplates his death, his soul is so overwhelmed with the prospect that he says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now clearly that's the temptation that is arising in his, in his heart to say, I, I, I can't go through with it. And he says, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Do you hear what he's saying? Am I going to pray, Father, deliver me? No, I came to this world for this very hour. And so he goes on to say, and I think his point is, this is what I'll pray. It's all I can pray. Father, glorify yourself in me. And the amazing thing about this passage is that the heart of the Father, which is so, so carefully tuned to the heart of the Son, is so gripped by the moment that the Father breaks protocol. And he speaks aloud. And he says, you have this promise in verse 28, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, let me just tell you something. Two things. Number one, that's the promise Jesus took to the cross. He, the joy that was preeminently set before him, was that he would glorify his Father. And I would submit to you that whatever, not to go to preaching, but whatever the heartache, whatever the trial, whatever the confusion in your life, ultimately you're going to have to bow the knee and pray that prayer. Father, you be glorified. You take me through this. And you read Hebrews 5 and how Jesus... Well, no, let's not go there yet. 
The fact is, Jesus was heard because of his godly fear. He simply cast himself on the Father. Father, you glorify yourself. Now file that away for just a moment. That's Tuesday, all right? Now, let me take you back to Luke 22. Because what happens is, on, two, on Thursday afternoon, now remember, it's Passover when the sun goes, uh, I'm sorry, the Bible is explicit that the Passover lamb is to be slain on Nisan 14 between the evenings. In Israel, there's sort of two evenings to each day. When the sun gets past its apex and you get the fresh breezes off the Mediterranean, the cool breezes, that's the first evening, about 3 in the afternoon, and then about uh, 7.30 it's going to get dark, and that's the second evening. So during that period, the lambs have to be slain in the temple. I'd love to tell you a lot more about it, but suffice it to say that on Thursday afternoon, look at it in Luke 22, it says in verse six, uh, 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover. Now that would mean primarily to take the lamb which they had purchased, which they had uh, uh, procured and had inspected, and take it uh, at the appropriate time and have it slain. And then they would take it to the place where they were going to keep the Passover and, uh, and prepare the meal. Well, the disciples say to him, Peter and John, in verse 9, where do you want us to prepare? And he said, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, you remember this story, right? Look, folks, I haven't got time to dwell on this, but suffice it to say, I get myself in trouble here. Don't be mad at me. I'm telling you, think about it. I'm a swell fellow. No, the, the point is, everybody reads this and finds Jesus omnisciently knowing this man. It doesn't make sense. Like, like the, they said, where are we going to do it? And he said, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I'm getting something here. You're going to go into town, you're going to meet a man. <laughs> now, I don't mean to be facetious, but it, it just doesn't work. And, and besides, what's that man doing there? Here's the thing. I am persuaded, I was going to develop it, I don't have time to develop it, but I'll just tell you, I, I am persuaded that this was deliberately arranged. That probably on Wednesday, something like this happened. Jesus went there in Bethany to Lazarus. I need to borrow one of your servants for a little while. Took him aside. I need you to run an errand for me. There's a woman. Her name is Mary. She has a large house in the Western Hill. And uh, for reasons I can't explain right now, she won't be using the room. And so I'm going to ask you to, to, uh, to ask her if I can use the room. If it's okay, tell her to have a man carrying a pitcher of water at a very important gate. The pitcher of water. A man carrying a pitcher of water. It's just a stroke of genius. Because men, as you know, don't normally carry the water. But on the other hand, so, so it's going to be a good signal. But it's not like I would say a two-headed chicken, you know what I'm saying? People aren't going to stop and gawk, you know what I'm saying? But there probably aren't going to be two, and if there are, it won't be hard to figure out which is the right one. Does that make sense to you? It's really a stroke of genius. But why? Why does Jesus do this? Do you see? Quite clearly, he's keeping the place secret from Judas. Because if Judas had known where that place was that they were going to keep the feast he'd have had those soldiers there waiting for it and we would not have had the upper room and it's fascinating that when jesus gets to the upper room he says to his disciples you don't know with what desire i have desired to keep this supper with you and i think he is saying i'd rather moved heaven and earth to make sure that the the soldiers didn't get here before we did does that make sense to you now, I'm absolutely convinced of that. There's hardly any way to make sense of it. And the fact of the matter is that it makes the story more compelling. It makes sense of the story because you've got to understand that here's Judas. On Tuesday night, he made that bargain. I don't know, but I wonder if he didn't spend all Wednesday just wandering from one of the disciples to the other and making small talk and saying, hey, have you heard where we're going to keep the Passover? You know, I'm just asking, you know. But, but uh, he's got a real problem here. 
And now uh, what happens is Peter and John come back. Jesus leads them to that upper room. You can imagine Judas is doing a slow burn the whole time. It finally discovers when they go up that outside staircase into that large upper room that w- w- where the, the feast is going to be. And so, of course, immediately he, uh, uh, I think Judas begins to just seethe. Judas wants out of there. He's got to get out of there. Does that make sense to you? But there he sits. Well, so now, if you don't mind, they come to the upper room. Preparation is made, and then they come to the upper room. Uh, Luke 20. Oh, here. This is, this is the model. And all I wanted to show you here is that the, uh, this is Herod's palace. Huge fortification. Here is the temple over here, by the way. This entire stretch here is the western hill. Just to the south here is the, the, the home of Mary, the mother of Mark, where Jesus almost certainly kept, the, I mean, whether or not it's her, the, the house was certainly there on the hill. As a matter of fact, look, I'm going to do the upper room in five minutes. <laughs> Folks, they, they come to the upper room, and uh, uh, now listen, I want to, see, here's the problem that I have. When, when, when I say upper room, immediately, you think of the painting, right? The Da Vinci painting. Thirteen guys all on the far side of the table facing the artist and so on. <laughs> it's not the way it happened. Big, you know, table and chairs and so on. Couldn't be more wrong. And it confuses everything. So I've asked my new friend Thomas to help me here. And the Bible says again and again that they reclined to eat. Now, whether or not this was the common thing is hard to say, but certainly when they kept a feast, because a feast really was a, you would keep the feast, then you'd lay back and go to sleep. And it went on for some time, and there was teaching that went on and so on. And so in a formal room, and interestingly enough, this part of the hill, I'm sorry, this part of the city that I just pointed out, this western hill, is where most of the fighting was, the most devastating fighting in 1967, and it was also horribly, horribly uh, destroyed by the, by the uh, Palestinians during because it was the Jewish territory. And so the point is that after the Six-Day uh, six War, that's the area where the digging could be the most aggressive and huge archaeological digs. And, and so we know this part of the city better than the other, and they have uncovered several of these, these formal dining rooms, and it, was, it, was, it featured what's called a triclinium. It's a three-sided table shaped like a horseshoe, and it's only about that far off the ground. There are pillows on the outside, and you lean on those pillows when you eat. Does that make sense to you? You recline to eat. This is it. This is pretty much it. You'd have the tables here, right? Tables here, and we each have a pillow, and we'll get comfortable in different ways, but, but basically this is the posture. And uh, there was a pecking order. There was a certain place, and it's hard to describe, but on the, if you're looking at the open end on the right side, second one in, is where the master of the feast would sit. And, of course, your standing was determined by how close you were to the master. This is what John and James are asking for. The feast, I'm sorry, the kingdom is not some huge throne room, it's a feast. And they're asking to sit one on the right and one on the left. Remember the Bible says that as they entered the room in Luke 24, that a dispute arose over who should be greatest in the kingdom. You know, several weeks earlier, Jesus had made a promise to the 12 disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes. Well, you know what? Some of those tribes are bigger than others. You know what I'm saying? And I think they were saying, man, I don't want Dan or Gad, for heaven's sakes. I'm hoping for Judah or Manasseh. And so the point is, and I, I'll tell you something, I am absolutely convinced that the, the, the disciples really believed that Jesus was about to hand out kingdom assignments. 
Think about Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Think about the fact that the Daniel prophecy had come to pass. Think about the fact that this is Passover for heaven's sakes. And why not deliver Israel from a Gentile nation once again in the Passover season? And so here they are diving for the chief of seats. Now remember, Jesus knows he's going to die. He's he's never going to sleep again. He knows he's going to die the next day. But they gather around the table. Now, let me ask you something. If I'm Jesus, who's this? This is John. Because the Bible describes, I mean, John describes himself as the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast. Now, that's very descriptive, and the point is, if we're both in this position, and he wants to talk to me privately, he just kind of leans back. Does that make sense to you? And that's very much a part of the story. There's another part of the story, by the way, I think that makes sense. I'd love to stop on it. But the fact is that when you look at that picture of the men all sitting at a table, the idea of the, the filthy feet is not nearly so, see the point? Passover season is Passover's in the spring. Spring is the latter rains. Uh, the streets are sloppy. It's a horrible social faux pas to enter a formal feast room with soiled feet. And so, but there's no place to put them. See the point? Here we are at, the, at, at lying, and he looks around, and, and I think clearly we know there was a basin and a towel. It was prepared. Normally that would be a servant, but this is a borrowed house, and so they didn't have a servant. And I think each one of those disciples had to kind of do the gut check thing as they came in. You know, oh, not me. I don't want to look like a servant. I'm hoping for Judah, you know. Or... And so they come in, and here they are with their soiled feet, and Jesus looks around, and in the middle of this feast gets up and, uh, and, and washes their feet. Remember that? Then he sits down and says, do you know what I've done to you? If I, you're, you, you call me Lord, he says, you call me Lord and Master. And you say, well, for so I am. If I, your Lord and Master, this is John 13, have washed your feet, and I always think, how do you finish that at your house? If I've washed your feet, you ought to wash my feet. That's the way I'd finish that sentence. It's not the way Jesus finished it. And I think if Jesus were here, every one of us would stand in a long line in the snow to wash his feet. But he never asked us to wash his feet. He asked us to do something much more difficult and much more significant, that is to wash one another's feet. I mean, it's such a remark. Here they are, hungry for the chief of seats, hungry for the biggest tribes, fighting over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus gets up and gives that remarkable demonstration of servanthood. Well, then, here's what happens with this undone. They're reclining at the table, and after they're well into the feast, Jesus announces that the hand of the betrayer is with him at the table. They all begin to say, is it I? Who could it be? Which is a testimony as to, by the way, who's here? That's Judas. It's a testimony to what a good imposter he is. And I think how evenly-handedly Jesus had dealt with him. But they all begin to talk, and so we can identify John, and we can identify Judas. The other guy that's kind of interesting is Peter. He moved a little slow. Because when Jesus said the hand of the betrayer is at the table, it says Peter made motion to John. Remember that? Ask him who it is. So it's at this point that John leans back and leans on Jesus' breast and asks him quietly, who is it? And I think Jesus probably quietly said to him, the one to whom I give the morsel. Now this was an act of kindness. You'd take that lamb and you'd make it into almost a stew and you'd have pots or little bowls of it and then you'd have individual loaves of bread and you just break it off and dip and if you got a very nice morsel you might share it with a neighbor it's very unlikely you'd get up and walk around the table that makes sense to you now by the way 
Jesus does that. He hands it to Judas. And you know what? Before that, I've got to tell you this. Before that, Matthew tells us that as they were all saying, is it I? Judas, who is next to Jesus, says, Master, is it I? And Jesus says, it is. Now think about that. What's going on in Judas's heart? All pretense is gone now. He knows that Jesus is on to him. And then, uh, and, and I think what happens is, because sometime later, Jesus hands this morsel, which was an act of kindness. And I think the other guys at the table probably watch that happen and says, oh, nuts, there goes Judah. You know what I'm saying? He's being so good to, to Judas, you know, he's going to get one of the big tribes for sure. But that act of kindness, so, and that's exactly what happens. His, his, his unrepentant heart is so angered by that that he gets up and he makes a lame excuse and Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And so Judas goes to betray Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Go to John 13 and with this we're done. John 13 is John's telling of that upper room discourse. And, uh, not, not the discourse, I haven't come to that yet, but that upper room experience. And specifically of, well, just pick it up in verse uh, 26 where he tells John, the one who's going to betray me is the one to whom I give the, the, the piece of bread. And then I think probably some time went by, but when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. And after, that piece of, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Folks, don't make Judas a victim. It's not that he was some unwitting, unwilling, robotic uh, servant of Satan. He had, he had steeled his heart against the truth. He had made place. Remember that verse in... Ephesians where Paul says, don't let the sun go down in wrath, neither give place. And the word that he uses there is actually the military word for a beachhead. You give Satan a beachhead in your life and he'll begin to invade every part of your life. And that's exactly what Judas had done. And now, again, this act of kindness so enrages him that uh, he gets up and departs. And, and look at verse 30. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. And then Jesus turned to his disciples. Now, folks, remember what he said in John chapter 12? Glorify yourself in me. Remember that? As Judas leaves the room, Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Which is to say, the game is afoot. The drama is unfolding. Judas has gone to fetch the Sanhedrinists. Now, I wanted to deal with Gethsemane tonight. Uh, we'll pick it up right there next week. Let me just say this. Jesus begins to speak. And, and, and in many cases, you'll hear John 14, 15, and 16 referred to as the upper room discourse. That's not quite true. Because in point of fact, Jesus begins to speak to the 11 left in the room. And all of a sudden, look at John 14 and verse 31. These are precious words and I'd love to spend some time with him but he's talking to him about he's going away to prepare a place he'll come back and receive him he's going to send him the helper he'll not leave him as orphans but then he says in verse 31 very suddenly at the end of verse 30 and you have to understand by now it's probably 11 o'clock or so the intent was entirely to just lay back on those pillows and spend the night that's what you would do but all of a sudden Jesus says see at the end of verse 31 arise let us go from here because Jesus knows that Judas has gone to fetch the Sanhedrinists. And he is desperate to have a little time with his father. And so before Judas arrives with the soldiers, Jesus makes his way to Gethsemane. Now, <laughs> what's going to happen? 
Judas is going to bring the soldiers back to this place. See the point? That's where he left them. When he gets there, he's going to find it empty. But John 18 says explicitly, we'll talk about this more next week, that Judas knew where Gethsemane was because they often went there. And Jesus and 11 other fellows simply could not find any other place to be. And there's a cave in that little garden of Gethsemane, and the cave is a very nice place to stay, and they would often repair to that place when they were in the region. So Judas, having burst into that upper room and found it empty, now makes his way out to Gethsemane. And we'll pick it up. Jesus, meanwhile, has had that season with his father. We'll talk about it next week. And then as he emerges, sometime midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, those Judas and the soldiers arrive. By the way, this will help you with one other tiny little thing. And that is the story of the boy in the garden. Remember that? When Jesus was arrested, there was a young man in the garden. Remember this story? Wrapped in a sheet. One of those stories for which I always say it's very hard to find a flannel graph. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that, because uh, he runs off sans sheet, remember that? That was undoubtedly John Mark. Jesus was in the upstairs room in his house. And now here come 600 soldiers with all the noise. They come down the lane. They go bursting into the room. There's nobody there. Mark hears all this, gets up, and wonders what in the world's going on and follows them out to Gethsemane. Does that make sense to you? It's only told in Mark, and it's very typical of the gospelists to tell untoward stories on themselves. So it makes all the sense in the world that it was Mark. And that and some other evidence makes us fairly confident that the home was the house of his, uh, John Mark's mother, uh, Mary. All right, so Jesus on... Thursday prepares, first of all, his disciples. And all along the way, by the way, he's speaking, John 15, uh, I'm the vine, you're the branches, John 16, it's expedient for you that I go away. Somewhere on the side of the Cadron Valley, he stops as he's making his way across the Cadron and over to Gethsemane and prays this remarkable high priestly prayer of, of John 17, prays for the disciples and so on. And then in John 18, John simply says that he stepped over the brook Kedron and went to Gethsemane. John doesn't tell us about Gethsemane. He he has Jesus going out to Gethsemane. But Jesus goes there and prays, and as he emerges, is arrested. It's fascinating to me that John gives us that point, that as he went over to Gethsemane, Jesus stepped over. This is John 18, about verse uh, uh, 1 or 2. That he stepped over the brook Kedron. The Brook Cadrone is the drainage ditch of the temple. And there was a huge system of conduits and cisterns and fountains and so on to wash away all of that refuse that was produced when those tens and hundreds of thousands of lambs were slain. And that, that, that Brook Cadrone makes its way all the way down, interestingly enough, to the Dead Sea, where all of that is deposited and totally broken down and so on, that heavy salt sea. It was, God provided this remarkable sewage arrangement for the refuse of the temple but earlier that afternoon the lambs had been slain and so that ditch would be running red with the blood of those Passover lambs and John rather poignantly has Jesus stepping over that brook on the way to Gethsemane and that brook is a reminder of the, sh- the blood he's going to shed all of that blood is just a picture of the blood that he's going to shed in just a few hours well we'll pick it up there next week our Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for your goodness. And, and Father, we thank you for this remarkable price that Jesus was willing to pay.
Deliver us from the notion that it was somehow easy for him. Help us to understand and might it get a hold of our hearts the awful price that he paid. But he paid it in order that he might glorify you, in order that he might draw us to himself. We thank you for it and again ask that it might excite in us an even deeper devotion to this one who gave himself for us and whose we are. We're not, with our, uh, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. and Therefore, might we indeed glorify you in all that we do. And we'll thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you.